0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always one romance view of the changing world, the changing times, but the things that we can all do to live a better life. When times get tough... Or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, I atop the highway, seven Ridge Live from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Today is Monday, November seventh, and this is episode seven hundred and seventy-nine of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday and we're back into the normal rhythm and swing of things. So this is a listener feedback show. If you'd like your question, comment, or some type of commentary on the air, you can send me an email. You send that to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. That is my personal email. There's no special super secret email. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, that's going to be the best chance of hearing back from me. I do my best to answer all emails. It's very, 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 very difficult. Nigh, I say impossible when you get 400 plus a day. And it's actually more than that now. So uh, if you don't hear back from me or don't hear yourself on the air, it's not because your email wasn't read and appreciated and understood. It's simply due to the volume of email that I cannot get back to everybody. Please try to remember that. Sorry for the little bump there. Uh, we're making some adjustments here in the office as I get kicked off today. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors before we get to your questions, comments, and commentary. And uh, sponsor of the day number one today, BackyardFoodProduction.com. Hey, if you want to know how to turn your backyard into a food production machine, you got to get the DVD, Food Production Systems for a Backyard or Small Farm, from Marjorie Wildcraft. You can find her at BackyardFoodProduction.com. Absolutely awesome, phenomenal DVD that shows you everything that they did to go into an extreme level of self-sufficiency. On their farm in South Texas. Absolutely awesome. And even though they have a lot of land, the heart of what they do is really only a couple acres. You can adapt their techniques from a couple hundred acres to a couple acres down to a half an acre in suburbia. So check out that DV today. If you know a homesteader, somebody that likes this stuff, man, would that make a great Christmas present for them. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants with Frank Sharp Jr., Hey, I'll tell you what, I say a lot of times you need ammo for those weapons or you just have an overpriced club. Well, you know, without training, it's not far from being the same thing. A lot of people have a vision in their mind of what they would do if they were actually in a lethal force confrontation, how they would handle themselves. And the reality is however you think you'll handle it probably is not how you will handle it. There's no such thing as too much training. That's why even the instructors in Frank himself at Fortress Defense, they take new training classes all the time. Every year they take several classes each to continue to improve. If they do it, you probably want to consider doing it too. So consider getting to Fortress Defense Consultants. Every single member of the audience who goes up there and comes back has a great uh, after-action review and says that they did do, do, do a phenomenal job up there. Frank's really been impressed with the uh, TSP people that have shown up there as well. Remember, he's up in Illinois, but if you can't get to him, you can put together a small group. Let's say six or more guys that want to do training, even if you want it like customized. You want to say like, we want to do three days worth of training. Here's what we want to do. Get in touch with them. They'll give you a quote, tell you what it'll take to get and travel. Down to you and train uh, at a range in your area, even on private property. They'll do that as well. They'll even go around your compound with you and talk about how to kind of shore up the security on it. Whatever you're looking for when it comes to defense training, you'll find it with Fortress Defense Consultants. And Frank Sharp Jr. Next up remember you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I did put out a video last week, toward the end of the week, on the uh Hulu Culture project where we're at. Uh part two is with the uh, video editor now. I think he's still kind of feeling out and learning Sony Vegas. Uh but we'll be shooting some more video on Friday, and hopefully by then we'll have that other video and one other video i shot for you guys up, and we'll be rocking on from there. I'm starting to put my greenhouse in. I think Thursday we're gonna start working on that. I'll be taking probably mostly what I'll do with that, the assembly part of it. I'll just do some still images and stuff like that put together a slideshow and we'll start talking about actually outfitting the greenhouse because how you put a greenhouse together is up to you and what model you buy but what you do with it is really what's important so that's coming as well to YouTube you can also catch us now of course on the Prepper Podcast Radio Network at prepperpodcast.com a lot of great folks over there you might want to check them out we are on their live stream uh, Monday through Friday from 4 to 5 p.m. kind of in the prime time slot uh, that is uh, based on Central Standard Time by the way uh, last but not least, do consider joining the member support brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get discounts from over 29 vendors. You get a lot of, uh, you get two, uh, free membership, discount memberships that are just awesome. One from Western Botanicals, one from Safe Castle. You get over $170. It's close to $200 now in free ebooks. Uh, $50 a year, that's 20 cents an episode. And remember, military, law enforcement, peace corps, active duty, or prior service, Please uh, email me before you join. I'll send you a special national service discount code uh, to thank you for your service to our country. Uh, with that, we've got everything wrapped up. We're ready to go ahead and take that first question. Uh, first one's kind of interesting. On uh, Friday, I said my final piece on Occupy Wall Street. I played a video. Some of you liked it. Some of you didn't like it. said we don't have to agree on this issue. You guys do what you want. I'll do what I want. But then I thought that if you are in an area where this stuff's going on, you needed to stay alert for dangers, uh, whether it would be small group danger or whether it would be large mob danger, you need to pay attention. And uh, that would be the only time I talk about it going forward. Well, it didn't take long for me to have something to uh, bring up to you. Let me uh, read this to you. Developer, this is on dot SFGate.com, which is a San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, this is uh, actually kind of shocking that it's painted in such a positive light uh, given it the, uh, the source of the San Francisco Chronicle. Developer with shotguns scared off Oakland rioters. Oakland developer Phil Tagami is used to working behind the scenes to broker some of the biggest deals in town. Late Wednesday, he was using a different persuasive skill, holding a loaded shotgun to scare away rioters trying to get into a downtown building. Quote, we had people who attempted to break into our building, and quote, the landmark rotunda building on Frank Ogwa Plaza outside City Hall, Tamagi said. Thursday, he grabbed a shotgun that he usually keeps at home and went down to the ground floor and, quote, discouraged them, end quote, he said. Quote, I was standing there and they saw me there and I lifted it. I didn't point it. I just held it in my hands, Tugmari said, and I just racked it and they ran. Um, Although they didn't get inside the building, Tugmari 46 oversaw its $50 million renovation has an office there. Vandals did scrawl graffiti on the outside of the walls. During the post midnight riot that broke out after Occupy uh, Oakland's uh, day long general strike. Okay, I'll, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. There's a couple lessons here. Number one, if you get enough people together in the street, angry about stuff, and they're not all in, you know, in on a common goal with a common objective, trying to get a common thing established, some of them will break away and do stuff like this. Number two, be armed. Be armed. How much damage could these people have done? They just put $50 million into rev- renovating this building. Number three, this is the rich. This is the rich that needs to be eaten. This is a local real estate developer. This isn't Monsanto, right? No, 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 no. This is a guy, and I'm sure that this guy's doing fairly well for himself, and I'm sure he he may, he's probably a guy I wouldn't even get along with, honestly. I mean, just... Just based on the fact that he's chosen San Francisco to do his development, who knows? Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. But, you know, maybe he's a guy I wouldn't even enjoy having a beer with. But I respect what he did. He defended his property. And I'm telling you, if you are any, you know, first of all, this goes to everybody. Be prepared to defend what you have at all times, period. But if you're near where this stuff's going on, whether you agree with it or not, because I'm going to tell you something that you may not want to hear. You can 100% believe in what these people are doing. You could have a sign in your front yard that says, Occupy Wall Street, we support you with a big heart. And when something like this happens, they'll smash and take whatever they want. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter if eighty percent of them all want to sit in a circle, sing kumbaya and be peaceful, the twenty percent will still destroy what you have. So that's not this is not again, I'm not breaking my word, I'm not going into the, the intricacies of the group. I'm telling you anytime there's a large group mentality going on, you have a risk of things like this going on. Please be prepared. Um Next one uh, comes from Darby uh, over, I think this is Darby from Stumbling Homestead, uh, who, by the way, is going to be on the air with us in the next couple months at some point. I don't know when, but he's on the schedule somewhere. Anyway, this is from Highland Park, Michigan, off the Associated Press. Unable to pay the bill, Michigan City turns off the lights. Highland Park, Michigan, as the sun dips below the rooftops each evening, Parts of this Detroit enclave turned into a pitch black, the only illumination coming from a few streetlights at the end of the block and from a glowing yellow yard globes. It wasn't always this way, but when the debt-ridden community could no longer afford its monthly electric bill, elected officials not only turned off 1,000 streetlights, they had them ripped out, bulbs, poles, and all. Now nightfall cloaks most neighborhoods in inky darkness. How can you darken any city, Act Victoria, Downdle? Donald? Whatever. Standing in the halo of light in her front yard? I think it was a disgrace, she said. The decision endangers everyone, especially people who have to walk around at night and catch the bus. Uh, This is The main reason I'm putting this on is is the outrage citizenry. I'm going to say it again because I just don't think enough people in this country are understanding it. No more money. They're out of money. They don't have the money. They can't pay the bill. Let me kind of jump ahead in the article to talk about how much money we're talking about here. Faced with a $4 million electric bill that required a $60,000 monthly payment, Mayor Hubert Yop asked the city council to consider reducing lighting. Council members reluctantly approved it, even in an election year. We knew it was going to hurt. Councilman Christopher Woodard said, we're all hurting. Okay, here's the thing. I understand shutting off some of the lights. I get it. Did it cost money to take, like, a third of them down. I think they took down a third of the lights. Uh, there's about 500 that are still shining. I, let me let me find that for you, so I don't misquote this while I'm making my point. I found it was in the, the image caption. That's why I was having trouble finding it. And it, there's a I have to temper some things here. Let me read this caption to you in the image. Um, photo: Cassandra Kabul stands in shadows cast on her home as she looks out into the street illuminated by house lights in Highland Park, Michigan. The 2.2 square mile city, unable to pay its $80,000 a month light bill, has worked out a deal with DTE Energy to have the electricity provider turn off and remove nearly a third of Highland Park's overhead steel lights. So they took away a third of them, which cut the electric bill a great deal apparently, and the electric company came in and took down the lights. Maybe that's to make sure the city doesn't use them. I guess was I I don't really understand uh, bureaucrats. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, it, It seems to me it would have been better to just turn the lights off. I'm sure that could have been done for a fraction of removing them, but apparently the power company did it. The power company is putting down the bill as an uncollectible expense. Um, so you know, let's leave the politics out of this. What does this tell us? It tells us that Highland Park is so broke they can't keep their lights on. Well, how long is it before they can't pay their bills? How long is it before they begin to go into default uh, on their on their bonds? It can't be much further out. Um, it's just another example of another city on its way toward oblivion. Uh, as I keep telling you, and I keep telling you to be prepared long term for a major, major municipal bond failure uh and, and municipalities failing all over the United States and this is you know a perfect example of that and I've got another one for you here in a bit how about something a little more useful and positive though have you ever heard of cooler corn uh this was sent to me by a guy named Richard from the audience and he's just got a picture and there's about I'd say I don't know two a dozen and a half years of corn in the bottom of a Coleman cooler and a person dumping steaming hot water from a tea kettle into the cooler and I will read to you what was in the uh, the email. Am I the only person who hasn't heard of, quote, cooler corn, unquote? An obsessive food nerd, you'd expect that I would have at least heard of it, but over the weekend I was blindsided by the simple simple genius of this method for cooking loads of corn on the cob perfectly. I was introduced to it while visiting my family in Maine. Short story, we like corn on the cob. And with eight adults at the table, that means a couple dozen ears. We would have used one of the large lobster pots to cook them all, but the lobster pot was busy steaming lobsters. Then my sister, a capable Maine cook with years of camping experience, says, Let's do cooler corn. Before I could ask, What the heck is cooler corn? A Coleman cooler appeared from the garage, wiped clean and then filled with shucked ears. Next, two kettles full of boiling water were poured over the corn and the top was closed. Then, nothing. We sat down for dinner 30 minutes later and opened it. The corn was perfectly cooked. I'm told the corn will remain at the perfect level of doneness for a couple of hours. Turns out cooler corn is pretty well known among the outdoorsy set, but for those of us who avoid tents as much as possible, it's perfect for large barbecues and way less of a mess than grilling. In fact, I may even buy another cooler, so I'm ready for next summer. Now I'm in the know. That's pretty cool. And it makes me wonder how many other things could we actually cook that way. So again, the method is throw the corn in the cooler, uh, put enough water in the cooler to uh, to to cover the ears of corn. Close the lid and wait at least thirty minutes, and it'll be good for two hours. Um, I don't think a lot of vegetables could be done that way. Um, with the kind of kind of set it and forget it level that corn is, corn can be steamed for hours and hours and kind of retain its crunchiness and its its color and everything. I think if you did beans that way or whatever, you'd have to pay a little more attention uh, to the time. But it is an interesting idea, and it takes something very very simple and it allows us to expand our skill set with it. So I want you to think about that. If you cooked anything in a cooler, let me know. I'll give you one other example of things that are done with coolers. It's pretty cool. You get a great big pot. And you fill it with beans, and you you know beans that you're gonna have to cook all day long. Dried beans that have been soaked overnight. You bring them up to to a simmer. You get them to a good good uh, going simmer. Give them a good stir. Close the lid on your pot. Wrap it in a blanket. Stick it in your cooler. Close your cooler. You can leave it in there for four or five hours and your beans will be perfectly done. I'm not a big bean eater. Uh, I kind of go with the paleo lifestyle now especially. Um, but I, I like beans on occasion. That's a great way to do it without having to pay attention all day and stir. So if you've used coolers to cook anything else, let us know in the subject line today. Um, here's another question. I thought this might help some people that are out there worried about Hoogle culture. Um, says, uh This comes from Jennifer. Jennifer says, I'm paying to have a backover come over and dig ten holes so I can plant some fruit trees. I've heard you talk about culture and was hoping I could ask you a couple questions. What type of wood should I use? Does it need to be seasoned? How far from the fruit tree should it be buried? How deep should it be buried? I also want to know that you have touched, moved, and inspired me. Okay, well, thank you for saying that. On the Hugo Culture, and I actually answered Jennifer by email because this sounded like something pending now, so I wanted to have an answer, but I'll give it a more expanded answer and one for the whole audience here. Uh, first of all, as far as what would you use for Hugo Culture, don't use walnut, don't use locust, and that's about it. Because they have very heavy antifungal properties and they won't break down for a long time. Locust, like, you know, just about everything in there is, is literally saturated with antifungal. That's why the, the wood lasts so long. I would say osage jars probably wouldn't work real good either. Uh, but any kind of wood that's gonna take longer to break down is probably less desirable. But, like I've heard people say, well, don't use oak. Well, other than the fact that oak's good for firewood and timber and so many other great things, uh, I would I would be happy to use oak, especially if I could find something that's already starting to rot. It'll rot just fine when you cover it with wet dirt. So the, one, one of the things where people are concerned, like cedar, like we can't use cedar, it takes forever to break down. Not when it's completely buried under humus and soil. It actually breaks down quite well. One of Paul Wheaton's videos on Hulu Culture has a guy that basically took a bunch of uh, leftover cedar blazes and buried them, and, and, and it worked quite well. So you can pretty much use just about any wood you want with a few uh, you know exceptions to some things that are allopathic. People are afraid to use pine because of allopathic uh, qu- uh, qualities of pine. The wood itself is not allopathic, the needles are. So you don't want to bury the needles, but the pine wood is fine for it. It actually breaks down fast. One of the cool things you can do is a mix because then you have some stuff that breaks down quicker and it starts doing its thing a little faster and some stuff that takes a little longer so it has more longevity to your bed. Uh, a good hugo culture bed will have anywhere from a twenty, 12- uh, to 20-year lifespan plan if there's enough wood there. As far as planting your trees, where do you plant your trees? How far away? Uh, if you want the trees to be able to make use of the hugo culture, it needs to go on top. That's how it works. Uh, I guess if you were close, your side roots could get out there and feed off of what's out there as far as taking up some moisture. Another way to do it, if it would be is if you put your Hougu culture beds on contour and basically make effectively an above-ground swale, and then you could plant your trees just downhill on the side of the Hougu culture beds. So a cool way to do this might be to go in and lay your beds out on contour. So we, we go in and we mark our contour lines with something like a simple A-frame level put some flags in the ground or whatever. Then we come back in with our logs and we build what looks like a wooden dam right along the contour line. It's kind of what it is. Then we come in with our uh or we do this manually in smaller scale with a shovel, and we dig a swale ditch on contour directly behind following the exact line that we've set up for our wood to lay on. And then we take our dirt right out of the ditch and put it right on. Now we've got a hula culture bed with a swale behind it. That's even more effective than just culture by itself. That will hydrate the culture bed, and it will also hydrate the land downhill. So it would be a much better layout for kind of a food forest type thing. With 10 trees, though, you could probably just go into a situation where you build 10 10 cultures and plant your trees as part of each culture system, or even maybe a larger system with two or three trees feeding on it. It would be very practical, I think to go in and basically do something analogous to a bana- what they call a banana circle in Hugu culture uh, or in permaculture with with Hugu culture component to it. A banana circle in the tropics, what we do is we, we dig a great big hole, right? And then all around that hole, and the holes may be a couple feet deep, and all around that hole we plant bananas. And into that hole we just throw branches, trees, organic matter of any kind we can. It really kind of is culture. Um But with... Fruit trees, and in, not in the tropics and what have you. What we could actually do is maybe make that circle a little bit bigger and a little less confining, a little more open space in there. Let some light in, especially when those trees are small and just going up. So we build our build a hugelkultur mound. So we dig out our hole and then we mound the, the dirt on top of the hugelkultur pile and we go up maybe two feet above above grade and we plant our trees around that and then we plant ground cover or smaller planta- plants or things that are maybe annuals into that and they won't be affected by the tree shade until several years at least when the trees begin to get up higher in the canopy. So there's a lot of ways that you can do it. As far as how deep do you bury your hugelkultur beds, somewhere between a foot and two feet is probably more than sufficient. I've seen people do it where they literally have six to eight inches and it it works. It takes longer because there's less dirt to work while the logs are, you know, uh, decomposing. People ask, well, how far does it settle? My, my response to how far does it settle is why do you care? Right? Because as it settles, you just keep adding more compost and organic matter on top of it. Right? So it doesn't matter how much it settles because that answer can't be given. Uh, If you just want me, how much is it going to settle? I don't know. What kind of wood did you use? What kind of shape was the wood? Was it full brand new wood or was it already partially decomposed? How deep is the wood? How much material is on top of the wood? What's your temperature like? What's the decay rate of wood in a wet hole in your area? Because I guarantee you it's different in Helena, Montana than it is in Houston, Texas. So I don't know how much it's going to settle over how long. I know that it will settle some, and as it does, you keep adding organic matter. That's how the system works. So hopefully that helps people. One big thing with hügel Culture, folks, stop overthinking it. Stop sweating it. If you want it in ground because you want a flat bed, that's what I did, do it. If you want a great big mound because that's how it actually is more efficient, do it. That's fine. It's burying wood. It, it It's no more complicated than that. With very few exceptions, it doesn't matter what you bury. You can bury a gum tree. It will be just fine. You can bury a pine tree. You can bury an oak. You can bury a hickory. You can bury anything. To me, the smart thing to do, though, if I have good quality oak or hickory, you know, it's either something that we want to mill or it's something we want to split and use for firewood or cooking material or what have you. It's very, very high quality. Most of the time, you can find places where there's trees have been felled and they've been left to rot. And when that wood's about half-rotted, to me it's perfect. Because if it's if not half-rotted, I can pick it up and take it home and use it for firewood. But if it's in a half-rotted state, then it's perfect to put in... It's, it, not that I couldn't put good wood in there. Not that good wood would actually make the system run longer. But why take something that has a high-quality yield use for fuel or for, for material... Instead, when you can use something that's already past that state when there's plenty of it out there. Most landowners, I don't think you'll have a hard time uh, asking them if you you can remove rotted wood from the ground in their their land. Uh, I think if you just go out and kind of touch base with some landowners, if you don't have uh, space around you that's kind of public access, you'd be okay with that. You do have to be careful with that concept on public land. There are some states where if you, even if you're just picking up rotted logs, you need a permit, basically a firewood permit or what have you to be able to do that, even if you're not using it for firewood. So check with local ordinances before you do anything like that on public land. But you may find, for instance, that uh, some city parks are loaded with it. And if you go down to your, your town council office or whatever, you may be able to get a permit or a written permission or what have you. And they may tell you to go, you know, go jump. Uh, all you can do is ask. Uh, next article is really an interesting one, and it's interesting, and it will kind of challenge you, but it doesn't matter as much, I think, as the author thinks it does. This comes from Jockum, and it's called um, Three Misconceptions That Need to Die, and it's on the Motley Fool. It's kind of a cool website. I like The Fool, uh, but uh, in this case, uh, it's, it's a great piece of journalism that doesn't matter as much as the author thinks. So here we go. I think that maybe you will, uh, I'll just tell you where the, the, the misconceptions, and I just want you to think about them before I give you the facts behind them. Misconception. Most of what Americans spend their money on is made in China. Okay? Do you believe that? Yes or no? And think about it a little deeper than just the surface. Misconception. We owe most of our debt to China. Most Americans believe we owe most of our debt to China. Uh, misconception, we get most of our oil from the Middle East. We get all the oil from, from, from Saudi Arabia and Qatar and, and and Iran and Iraq, and that's where all our oil comes from. All right, so uh, where are you on those? I, I, I think it's better if you, uh, if you think a little bit deeper about this before I give you some of the facts on it. All right, so hopefully you've done that now. Again, misconception, most of what Americans spend their money on is made in China. Fact, just 2.7% of personal consumption expenditures go to Chinese-made goods and services. 88.5% of U.S. consumer spending is on American-made goods and services. I used that statistic in an article last week, and the response from readers was overwhelming. Hogwash, people just didn't believe it. The figure comes from a Federal Reserve report you can read here. I don't quite trust those guys anyway, but that's fine. A common rebuttal I got was, how can there only be 2.7% when almost everything in Walmart is made in China? Well, because Walmart is a $260 billion U.S. revenue isn't exactly reflective of a a $14.5 trillion U.S. economy. Walmart might sell a broad range of knickknacks, many of which are made in China, but a vast majority of what Americans spend their money on is not knickknacks. The Bureau of Labor Statistics closely tracks how Americans spend their money. In an annual report the Consumer Expenditure Survey in 2010, the average American spent 34% of their income on housing, 13% on food, 11% on insurance and pensions, 7% on health care, and 2% on education. Those categories alone make up nearly 70% of total spending. Hold on. Let's think about this. There's more on here, and you can read the rest of it if you want to. But this was when somebody sent me this. Uh, they had the three misconceptions listed and the facts, and not the rest of the article. And I already knew where he was going to go. I already knew that it was going to be well housing. Well, of course you bought your house in America. You live there, stupid. That's what That's why I feel like telling this guy. So your your biggest expense that most people have it eats between twenty to thirty six percent of the average Americans. Cost of living is a house or an apartment that you rent. Of course it was made in America. It's in America. What kind of flipping retard would you have to be to believe that your house was made in China? But I will submit to you this, who made your doorknobs? You know, Go on down to Home Depot and look at who made your doorknobs today. Now maybe your doorknob, I know that's not a major household expense, but what about the appliances in your home? How many of those were made in China? Actually, a lot of those are still made in America. So that's one place in housing in the primary systems that go into housing: refrigerators, washing machines. We're holding pretty strong. Who made your TV set, your stereo, though, your computer, the modem that, and the modem and router for your internet access? Bet that stuff probably came from China. Okay, the next one is a car, right? Well, cars. We don't get our cars from China. So, this, that's another major expense for people, right? A car. But you know where we do get cars made from? Korea and Japan. Okay, so, and Germany, and Mexico, and how many of American cars are actually assembled in Mexico today, or made in Korea, or made in Japan? And how many Korean and Japanese car companies do their manufacturing in America, but the money goes back to you know, Japan or Korea. So there's a little bit of a discompobulation there. 13% of our money spent on food. Of course, most of our food's made here. We do import an awful lot of food. Uh, They go into the exact number of of, uh, what we import as food. But we, we do produce a lot of our food here. But see, the big thing today that's eating the most Americans' food budget is that they're paying for food somebody else cooked. So even if the food came from somewhere else, the point is that most of our crap comes from China. And it's that crap that people depend on for their entertainment and their comfort and all other stuff. And that's why I think we would be okay without it, honestly. We really would. But the the other side of this is how it's becoming a bigger and bigger piece. And I would be interesting to know what percentage of the average American's income is spent on crap from China and imports in total... If we take away cars and housing, and it actually has a number in here, I just don't quite think it jives with reality. Um, and I think that maybe some things are being simplified a little bit, but I'll let it go with that. Just, it doesn't matter. The The real issue with China isn't how much we get from them versus how much we spend, it's how much comes from them versus how much we sell back, a massive trade deficit. In fact, uh, the next fact on China, we owe most of our debt to China, fact- China owns 7.8% of U.S. government debt outstanding. As of August, China owed 1.14 trillion of treasuries. Government debt stood at 14.6 trillion that month. That's 7.8%. Who owns the rest? The largest holder of U.S. debt is the federal government itself. Various government trust funds like Social Security Trust Fund owe, uh, own about 14.4 trillion worth of treasury securities. So we owe 14, 4.4 trillion dollars to Social Security. That doesn't make me feel better. Social Security's going broke, and we can't. That means we don't owe the money to the government. We owe the government the money to the people. The government owes you the money that they're not going to be able to pay. Does that make you feel better? If you're, you know, betting on Social Security at some point in your life, the Federal Reserve owns another 1.6 trillion dollars in debt. Both are unique owners. Interest paid on debt held by federal trust funds is used to cover a portion of the federal spending, and the vast majority of interest earned by Federal Reserve is remitted back to the U.S. Treasury. Okay, there's something that I want to talk to you guys about. This is always the objection when people like me tell you the Federal Reserve owns the country, because they get our money by assuming our debt. And what they're saying here is the Federal Reserve will give back the interest to the U.S. Treasury. So, when they make a profit, when the Fed makes a profit, they pay it back. Okay? Here's the scam. First, they pay all their operational costs. So, their entire organization is funded out of that interest. So, they only pay a small portion of the interest back. But what about the principal? What do you mean, what about the principal? Well, let's say that, um, we, you know, when we pay back debt, we pay back principal and interest. And let's just look at, to make this easy and understandable, because these numbers are so huge, at, let's say, a million dollars worth of debt. And a million dollars worth of debt carrying 2% interest, uh, then we're going to pay back a whopping one million, one million and twenty thousand dollars Right? A 2% over one year. Now, it never works out that way. We're oversimplifying it. There's nitpicking numbers up and down. But let's just use that because it's easy to understand. We owe the Federal Reserve a million dollars and there's a $20,000 interest payment on that million dollars. So that $20,000 in interest gets paid They take that $20,000 and they use it to do stuff like buy more stuff that we'll then owe them again. They use it to, you know, furnish their offices and and plan their meetings and everything like that. And then some piece of it's left. Let's say $4,000. And then they turn and they hand that back to the Treasury and say, here's your profit. Now, that in itself really isn't as bad as it probably even sounds to some of you. I'm more concerned about that million dollars. What about that million dollars? Who gets that? Well, the Federal Reserve gets that. Of course they do. They bought a million dollars worth of bonds. They spent the million dollars. They give the interest back. They pay their expenses with the profit, you know, on the interest, and then they give the remit. And and what's the problem with that? Again, what did they do to get the million dollars? Did they actually remit a million dollars? No. They made a computer entry that deposited a million dollars in new money into whoever they bought the the bonds from. So if Bank of America was holding the million-dollar bond, they go to Bank of America. Actually, Goldman Sachs gets in the middle, but we'll leave that for another day. And the, and the Fed says, we'd like to buy your million-dollar bond. And Bank of America says, we can use the million-dollar right now for whatever reason. We'll sell it to you, and you get the interest. And the Fed says, cool. So the Fed goes there, you know, type, type it in. And deposit to Bank of America $1 million, but no money comes out of anywhere. That $1 million dollars is new money. They keep it. That's the scam. That's how it works. The objection that you will always hear, and that's one of the reasons I put the story on today, the objection that you'll always hear that the Federal Reserve remits the profit back to the Treasury is a complete scam because the $1 million dollar buy is considered an operational expense, but they didn't spend any money. So right now we owe those suckers 1.6 trillion, and after they pay for all of their posh operations, and after they use it to buy more debt with, right? After they do every, you know, buy these bad securities and crap like that up, that's not US debt, right? That's bailing out the banks. So they use the money to bail out the banks. They use it to bail out Freddie and Fannie. They use it to bail out whoever they want to bail out. They lend it to anybody. They call it an expense. They give us the chump change left over back to the Treasury, and they keep the basis that they never put up any consideration for. So that doesn't make me feel better that China only owns 7.8% of our debt. Let me put it to you another way, though. What percentage of your debt do you have to be able to not pay before you go to bankruptcy? What percentage of your debt do you have to be able to not pay if you couldn't pay 7% of your bills? Doesn't it keep you from paying any of your bills eventually? Isn't that how it works? So um, the other thing that's being left out here is it's not just that China holds 7% of our debt. It's how rapidly that percentage has risen over the years. I mean, just in the last year, the, the debt we owe to China has increased by 30%. You know, just, a, just 10 years ago, China was holding a couple percentage of our total debt, and now they're holding seven. They're they they're buying it. Then the other thing you have to look at is what percentage of our debt do we owe to China if we take out the funny money internal bookkeeping business with the Federal Reserve that we just talked about and Social Security. So if we take out the money we can't pay ourselves or we're screw our own citizens on, if we take out the money the Federal Reserve just picks up off the street for doing nothing and gets to keep, what percentage of our our debt is owed to China? Then, well, then it's twenty six percent, right? And I mean, Alan West got in trouble for saying that China owes, holds about twenty six percent of our debt right now, and they said, dog, oh, he's lying; his figures out of the air because of what you just heard here." It's about seven percent. Well, when we take the Fed Reserve and we take Social Security IOU, the empty the empty IOU lockbox that Al Gore talked about, we take those out. He's dead on; it's twenty six percent. So we owe – of all the countries in the world that we owe money to other than domestically, we owe a quarter of that debt roughly to China, and that number's drastically rising. And the, 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 the source of concern and irritation is that, you know, that, that trillion dollars worth of stimulus, most of that money came from China. So that stimulus bill that was supposed to fix everything and didn't, that money – so again, this is this is where this article is actually right, and it's interesting to have these myths busted – but it's also, to me, it's more interesting to go in and see how they don't really matter. So look, look at the third one. Misconception, we get most of our oil from the Middle East. Factors, 9.2% of oil consumed in the U.S. comes from the Middle East. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, the U.S. consumes 19.2 million barrels of petroleum products a day. Of that amount, 42, 49% is produced domestically. The rest is imported. Where is it imported from? Only a small fraction comes from the Middle East, and that fraction has been declining in recent years. So far this year, imports from the Persian Gulf region, which includes Bahrain, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab, Arab Emirates have made up 9.2% of total petroleum supplied to the U.S. In 2001, that number was 14.1%. So even back then, it wasn't as high as it is today. Uh, or as high as people, would, I guess, think it is. The U.S. imports more than twice as much petroleum from Canada and Mexico than it does from the Middle East. And in the share produced domestically, uh, the majority of petroleum is consumed in the U.S. comes from North America. This isn't to belittle our energy situation. The nation still relies on imports for about half of its oil. That's bad. But should the Middle East get the attention it does when we talk about oil reliance in terms of security and geographic stability? Perhaps in terms of volume, probably not. Okay. This is why this one doesn't matter. What would happen if we cut oil production for the U.S. all the oil that we have by ten percent, nine percent, let's say? Let's say that that those little wimpy guys over there in the sandbox just said no more oil for you, and just stop giving us oil, and we had to just deal with having you know ninety what ninety one percent of what we have today, ninety percent, call it because. Let's round it up to 10%. So we only have 90% of what we have. We'll be fine. We still got 90%, right? Uh, No. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Do you know what a 2% drop against demand does? See, this is where the peak oil people are right, except they go out and they freak out about, there'll be no more oil left, man. There'll be nothing. This is where peak oil uh, reality steps in. We only have to have a few percentage points short of the demand. To create a peak oil situation where the price of energy skyrockets. And when the price of energy skyrockets, the price of everything skyrockets. Now, could the U.S. adjust to a situation where we did with 10% less? Yes. What would the world economy look like in the meantime? What would the U.S. economy look like in the meantime? And this is the bigger question. What happens when that 10% doesn't come from... Our friends in the Middle East not selling us oil. What happens when it just comes to peak oil production uh, happening in, in many places at the same time? If you listen to the show for a long time, if you listen to it since the beginning, you already know that Mexico and Canada are two biggest sources of oil. Because I've already talked about this. i talk talked about the Cantrell oil fields in Mexico hitting peak, peak several years ago. And they've been in decline ever since. Now we have this oil up in the northern United States they're finally cracking into. That's only three years' worth of our oil. If we would say, you know, what will it do with 100%? If we just shut off everything else, we got that thing running at peak, we extracted every single ounce of oil out of that new field. I can't remember what it's called. It's somewhere up there in the Dakotas. It would be about 3.2 years worth of our use. Now, it's actually a bigger deal than the uh, the eco-hippie that wants to say, no, man, we shouldn't drill for that, wants you to believe. Because, okay, it's only three years, but it's probably 20 years of, you know, looking at it another way, it's 30 years of 10%. It's, it's t- so think about that. If everything else were to stay the same, unfortunately it is not, it would replace for 30 years the oil that we're getting from the Middle East. We could just not need it at all for 30 years with a 30-year extraction timeline. The problem is the oil doesn't come out symmetrically. And this is why peak oil is real, folks. Every single oil field in existence follows the bell curve. The first oil starts to come out very, very slowly, slowly, slowly. Then the extraction begins to increase. As production goes full steam, it skyrockets. And it goes way, way up, 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 up. And then it starts to, instead of going up at a steep angle, it starts to go up at a less and less steep angle, the asymptote curve that we heard about with the Occupy Wall Street uh, video last week. See, mathematics are constant across many things. And as that starts to level out and uh, plateau, And then the first time after a certain while, it starts to go down. And once it goes down, it never goes up again. It goes down back the other side. Sometimes that other side is a steep drop. Sometimes it's less steep than the original curve up. But eventually it always looks the same. It always looks like a bell curve. So even if we did this as best we could, it's still not going to be that symmetrical in how it would support us. That oil that they found up or finally are drilling, again, I think it's in the Dakotas. It doesn't really matter, but that's what we're talking about. So what we see here when we find out that we only get about 10% of our oil from the Middle East, 9.2% to be exact, is it doesn't really fix the problem doesn't really fix the problem at all. So this is an interesting article. I think it would lead to some interesting conversations with people that that believe something to be absolutely true only to find out that it's not. But I think there's more to be learned by deconstructing the other side of the argument and figuring out why none of these things actually mean that we're not screwed. So anyway, that was was an interesting one. I know I spent a lot of time on it, but I thought it was a very, very interesting thing. Um, There is... uh, Another thing going on right now, uh, Brian sent me this, uh, where the uh, the campaigner-in-chief Obama is uh, proposing that we ease student loan burdens, and he wants to know what my take is on this plan. He doesn't approve of it. He wants to know what I think. Obviously, I'm probably not going to like it either, because it involves debt for a degree, and I think that's a bad move for most people. Um, let me read it to you, though. This is on Post Politics of the Washington Post. It's a... Blog by the Washington Post, and uh, here we go. Um, Obama moves to ease student loan burdens. President Obama on Wednesday announced a plan to allow college graduates to cap federal student loan repayments at ten percent of discretionary income, starting in January. Two years before the cap due to take effect under a new federal law. Okay, so basically, they, the Congress has already done this. They've already said that they're going to reduce this this for federal student loans from the government. Uh, from, from 15% to 10%, but that doesn't go into effect for two more years. He's going to do something with an executive power to speed that up and start it in January versus wait two more years to help people now. Uh, Let me continue reading for you. The accelerated pay-as-you-earn program, which Obama will authorize through executive order, could benefit up to 1.6 million borrowers and reduce their payments by as much as a couple hundred dollars a month. Administration officials said all remaining debt on the federal loans would be forgiven after 20 years, five years earlier than the current law. So not only do you have your payments capped based on your income, once you've made them for 20 years, if you can't pay any more... Or if you haven't paid it all off, they just write, write, write off your loan and forgive it. Twenty years of paying ten percent, and that's it. You're on and you're free. Okay. I just want you to understand what it says before I start critiquing it. In addition, some borrowers who have more than one federal student loan would be allowed to consolidate their debt, in some cases reducing their interest rates by up to half a percentage point, officials said. Obama formally announced the program at University of Colorado's downtown Denver campus. Quote, these are real savings that will help graduates get started in their careers, end quote. Education Secretary Arne Duncan said in a conference call with reporters on Tuesday, these changes could make a big difference in the lives of current college students and recent graduates as they enter one of the toughest job markets in recent memory. Yet it remains unclear how many people will take advantage of the offer, even with the economy lagging and college tuition prices continuing to rise. Since 2007, borrowers have been allowed to cap federal student loan repayments at 15% of discretionary income, but White House officials acknowledge that just 450,000 of the nation's 36 million student loan borrowers are participating in the income-based repayment program. So right now they can do this at 15% versus 10 but only about a half a million of 36 million are participating. Interesting. Uh, the student loan initiative incentives are intended to help energize the young Americans who were a key part to Obama's base in 2008 presidential race. That's the most factual statement so far in this article. Right? That's what this really is, is to help this guy get reelected. It's a political move, because it's something everybody already agreed upon, but he can look like he's taking charge of. Who's going to oppose it? When they already passed it, and he's just accelerating when it's going to take place. Alright? Let me get back to the article. They are a third effort uh, by Obama this week to use executive action and other measures that do not require congressional approval to try to spur the economy. Even as his $447 billion American Jobs Act remains stalled in Congress. Well, of course it's stalled in Congress. Harry Reid doesn't even like it. That's another political move, but we'll let that go. The White House has used the phrase, we can't wait, to describe these efforts, which include a program to help underwater homeowners repay their mortgages and another aimed at forcing community health centers to hire up to 8,000 military veterans. We're going to force community health centers to hire veterans. Force them. You will hire them, whether you like it or not. I'm not going to go into that today, but think about what we're doing there. White House officials have said the executive initiatives are not intended to replace Obama's jobs package, and the administration will continue to pressure Congress to approve that. Under current law, former students are allowed to cap repayments of federal loans at 15% of discretionary income. Last year, Congress approved legislation that would reduce the amount to 10% in 2014. So this is already approved. Obama is using his executive authority to create a separate provision that offers the same program in 2012, it said Melody Barnes, Obama's domestic policy advisor. a little bit more to the article. You can read it yourself if you want to. But now, as usual with me, you get the rest of the story. First, a great deal of these student loans um, that are coming out today are from private loans. So they're actually, you have the same tyrannical enforcement, by the federal government. So the federal government makes the make sure that you can't get away from paying your debt. You're going to pay your debt. It's not like MasterCard where you can escape. So but the but the lending institution is private. So it's a fascist it's a fascist model, right? The private bank bears no risk in losing the loan because if the student defaults, the federal government basically repays the loan and takes receivership of the loan. Right, so that's that's the banking system working for you, there, folks. Those those loans have interest rates as high as eleven to fourteen percent, so they're extremely expensive debt. So a lot of students are only able to get so much in federal student loans, and they finance the rest of their education with private debt. And these kids out there holding signs up with ninety six thousand dollars in debt with a degree in creative studies or something nonsensical like that. Many times, a large portion of that debt is not federal student loan it's private student loan with federal enforcement so for those people this does nothing that's one reason i don't like it just one if you're going to help every people help everybody uh I, I think the private student loan thing is a complete scam and i think it really victimizes uh kids because when they can't get any more money from 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 uncle scam they have to go over to banker scam right uh so that's a problem in of itself The next situation that we have to be aware of is when presented to somebody this way, it makes them likely to take out more debt. Well, you're just going to only, no matter what you do, right, Johnny, here's how this works. Can you see this conversation happening, right, at school with an educational counselor or what have you? If you're going to use $100,000 to go to school and you pay 10% of your discretionary income, we'll get to how important that word is here in a minute, uh, for 20 years the loan gets forgiven. Now, if, if $100,000 won't get fully repaid in that period of time, or even if it will, but if we'll just barely repay that, and you'd have to average $100,000 a year in discretionary income, Johnny, not not total income, just discretionary income uh, to, to, to actually repay that loan. Well, if you spend 200000 you still get out of it. You, you, at 20 years, you've made the same payments, and the loan's still forgiven. Think about that. How much debt does that encourage people to take? Now, that mentality gets spread around out there, and some of the loans these kids are taking are the first kind, right? And the other kind of loan is being taken to finance part of the education in the mind of the 18-year-old pimple popper who doesn't really know what he's doing yet. And he's just. Do- and here's the thing. I don't want you to think I'm coming down on these kids. They're doing what they were told to do. Everybody since they were knee-high to a grasshopper said, Johnny, get good grades, go to school, go to college, get a degree. They're doing what they're told. No matter what you have to do, you've got to get an education. It's priceless. So they're following the course. Society, mom and dad, the principal and the teacher have laid out for them to get that degree in whatever. In their mind, all of this debt is the same classification of debt. That's what's going to happen under this program. Only a portion of the debt. Is, is that way. And what they're going to end up doing is having all the money that they're paying to the private debtor be nothing but interest. And after 20 years, when that one loan gets devalued to nothing and forgiven and you and I paid for it, they're still going to be in hock to these other people. They're going to have their debts around so long you're going to think it's a pet. On top of this, this is you and me paying for failed education system. This is turning education into a taxpayer funded institution at the higher level at the college level beyond things like state, edu- state 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 universities right this is beyond that this is now we're funding the tuition for the institution we've already funded think about that this is a mess now here's the biggest thing this is the biggest reason this is nothing but politics all those kids out there that are angry holding up signs if this gets signed in january they'll feel like we got something done It's going to help us. It's not going to help them at all. They're not going to get any help. Do you know why? Because it only applies to new loans. So every dollar that they've borrowed, no matter what format they've been borrowed in, is subject to the old rules, the 15% cap, etc. And only money borrowed January 1st forward, if Obama signs this, which he probably will, will be subject to this. So most of these people are going to get duped on top of it all. And you again, you and I are going to pay for it. What we're going to see out of this is more people going to school that shouldn't be going to school. I'm sorry. Not everyone should go to college. I don't want to have that conversation again today. Maybe we'll do an in-depth show on it someday. But but there you go. That's one of the big things coming out of the political system right now. And how is this? Because I know somebody's out there, well, Jack, you went on this for so long. How is this a survival topic? It's more of our money we don't have. It's more of our money we do not have. It's more of your money and my money being dumped into a dark hole from which there is no return. There's nothing produced by this. All we're producing is people with degrees. That's not producing income. That's not producing wealth. This is something the American people have to lose their obsessive compulsive addiction to. The belief that a degree equals income. A degree does not equal income, especially now. Especially if that degree is in something like you know 16th century French literature or communications, or whatever, right? A degree today, you better be specialized in something, and you better be suited to do the job. And if you're not, I honest to God believe you're wasting your time. At at the most, what you should be doing is going to school part-time and working your ass off and getting work experience to go along with the education. Anything else is a recipe for disaster. It's 26-, 27-, and 28-year-olds that are acting like kids, That's what you end up with because they spent six, seven, eight years in school. They've never held a real job. And you got to think about where our grandfathers were by 26 and 28, how far into their professional careers they were by that age. Even the college educated of the time, what did they go to? They went to school for four years. They got out of high school at 18, 22. They were done, right? It was a serious thing if you were going to go to college. You knocked it out. You got it done. And you got on with working. So today, kids are in school 26, 27 years old. They're still hanging out in college. Maybe they have a, maybe they have a part-time job. They're living on their loans and their college funds combined. That's what they're doing. They're living out of the, you know, the dining hall or whatever. Now, I know there's a lot of kids out there working their ass off to get through school and they're working hard both on campus and with jobs off campus. I respect the hell out of them. If you're one of them, don't let me, like, I'm lumping you into this. But the survival aspect of this is our economy is important. Our economy is the biggest risk we have. And again, we're flushing money into a place where there is no return. And here's where it all rears its head. You know how I tell you all the time to increase your financial IQ? Well, then we need to have a good vocabulary. And we need to know the definition of words when they're thrown around in a political circle. And they sound good. This is what discretionary income means. This is a textbook definition. The amount of an individual's income that is left for spending, investing, or saving after taxes and personal necessities such as food, shelter, and clothing have been paid. Discretionary income involves money spent on luxury items, vacations, and non-essential goods and services. So when Johnny gets out of school with $100,000 worth of money that he borrowed from me and you, understand, in that loan, that's where the money came from. It's, It's taxpayer money. Johnny borrows from the taxpayers, and then he is able to pay back only 10% a year for 20 years of his discretionary income, which is his money left over after he pays for food, shelter, and clothing, and taxes, and all other personal necessities. Now, I'm sure that Johnny doesn't fill out a form every year. that says, this is what I spend on my food, this is what I spend on my clothing. I'm sure there's just an allowance in there. Based on geography, I, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm pretty sure of it. That if you know Johnny lives in Chicago, his cost of living deduction is one factor, and if he lives in Philadelphia, it's another. If he lives in Houston, it's another one, or maybe it's uniform across the United States. But that comes straight out of his income. Let's say you know because they say housing should be about. 25% of your income that at $100,000 worth of income your housing is 25 grand. Now there's only 75,000 left. Minus taxes, minus the food allowance, right? Minus a clothing allowance. So what's this 10% payment going to come out to? Do you want to tell you what it's going to come out to for the average person based on a news report that I heard that unfortunately I don't have the audio for you, between $160 to $320 a month. 160 to 320 dollars a month. Let's do a little math on this and, and see how this works out. When Johnny took out 100 thousand dollars worth of these loans, well, we split the difference between those two and we do an average. We get 260 bucks. But let's be a little bit more optimistic. Let's say Johnny ends up with 100 k in these loans and he ends up paying 300 dollars a month back. Now, remember, it's supposed to be interest on this. It's not supposed to be interest free, right? It's supposed to be a return to the taxpayer in return for a loan to anybody. That's how the system is supposed to work. So he pays 300 dollars a month. Uh, and that that's probably being overly confident because his first job's going to suck and his income's going to be much lower, so he's probably more like he's going to start out paying 120, 140 bucks a month, and he's gonna end up somewhere down the road paying around 400, and averaging out at 300 over 20 years is probably not very likely, especially in the the job market, but let's just say it does. Well, $300 times 12 months times 20 years is $72,000. So you and I just paid $18,000 of Johnny's education that he never pays back. And it just gets forgiven. Now, if this country was doing really well financially, we might be able to say, well, that's an investment because Johnny's a well-educated man at that point. This assumes that Johnny doesn't default on his debt. This is assuming Johnny doesn't spend any time being unemployed with you know a po- poverty income on unemployment of $10,000 a year where a student loan payment is going to drop. Because see, it's based on your income, not your potential income. Not what you should be being paid, but what you are being paid. This assumes that Johnny doesn't decide to just drop out of society and live in an RV. This assumes a lot of things that may or may not happen. And the the fact is that we are over $14 trillion in debt while we're doing this. The the, the, the upshot is this is one more place our government's putting your money where it's, it's, it's just basically being disintegrated into thin air. Let me frame it into a better perspective for you so that you can really understand what this this is like. Because this is what's happening to you against your will. I come up to you, and let's say you've just come into some money. And you came into $200,000, so we will be realistic that you could afford to make the investment. And you got $200,000 in cash just burning a hole in your hot little pocket, right? And I say to you, boy, do I have an investment deal for you. And you say, what's the deal? And I say, here's the deal. You give me $100,000. And I will guarantee you $300 a month back for 20 years. So you'll have a $300 a month income for 20 years. Oh, but wait. Um, actually, I'm going to use your money to do some stuff. And it's going to take me, because this is an education, right? But just make it a private matter between two people. I'm going to go remodel my mall or whatever with it. Uh, that whole project, that I'm going to have to use this money for about six years. So you give me $100,000 now, and in six years, I'll start giving you $300, and I'll do that for 20 years. At the end of those 20 years, you don't get any more money. Would you take that deal? If you did some math, you'd see that your money is tied up somewhere between 20 and 26 years, and you lose $18,000. But I'll guarantee you the $300. That's the deal being made on behalf of American taxpayers at a time when we we're $14 trillion in debt. So is it a survival topic? Yeah. And since it's also furthering this educate everybody uh, at a collegiate level, which is actually a big part of what's wrong with our economy right now, it's an even bigger one, but I'll leave that for another day. Here's an interesting uh, blog post that was sent to me by Mark. Mark says to me this, the thing is I don't know how much I can say that even what's here is true, because this is on Raid Raidwald, whatever the heck that is. And it's just a blogger blog. And um, I, I I don't know how valid the source is. Now, it does say they're like the top 50 right-wing blog, top 25 libertarian blog, uh, on total politics uh, awards, top 100 political blog. So apparently they're a pretty big blog, even though they're using Blogger, which I'm not a big fan of. Um, but here's what the article's called. And it was posted on 7 November and it's called coal, the greenest fuel. The obscene obsession with both wind and solar photovoltaic technologies, both hugely expensive and producing tiny yields of power, ignores the greenest technology of all, one for which we have massive existing reserves, and one that can be developed locally at a relatively low cost, coal paralysis. Simply, this is heating coal without allowing it to burn and capturing both the volatiles given off and the hard waste remaining. One of the UK's latest coal paralysis plants at Someplace I can't pronounce is shown below. Even a non-engineer can see how simple it is. I'll put a link to the article. You can look at it. Basically, it's a whole bunch of things that look like ovens with pipes coming out of them. Um, About half the gas output is hydrogen. 35% is methane. Hydrogen is a real vehicle fuel of the future, and methane can go straight into existing domestic supplies. Carbon monoxide is also produced. This can be hydrolyzed with hydrogen to make methanol used to produce biodiesel, so we can make biodiesel out of it. Byproducts include coke and coal tar. Coke can be burned as smokeless fuel in domestic fireplaces, and coal car can be further distilled to provide a range of useful products. There are small amounts of sulfur, sulfuric acid, which can be used for batteries, and ammonia uh, for fertilizers and explosives. Well, isn't that great? We can make fertilizer and explosives Produce Pretty much everything can be used. To be fair, I believe that information to be just about as accurate as it could possibly be. And I believe that if you believe in, in you know, Fossil fuel-based fertilizer dumping on the ground is good, and you think we need more bombs? That's really hard to argue with anything there, other than some kind of you know political niche. Obviously, uh, I'm pretty opposed to expanding any bigger than we are with the military. I think we're big enough. Uh, I think we actually could be a smaller, leaner uh, force if we weren't 100 and some odd countries with presences and would come home and defend our freaking borders. That that would be my choice. But you know, I'll let that go. And the fertilizer thing, you guys know how I feel about. Dumping chemical fertilizers on the soil and, and leaving it fallow. But let's say this is true and and that all of these byproducts can be used and none of it's toxic. Well, first of all, bull. Right? There's a lot of toxicity left over when you do this. But let's just say there wasn't. Let's say the magical coal paralysis fairy came and uh uh you know waved her pyrolysis wand. And the coal was perfect the way that it says here. The problem with coal is when you take it out of the ground. Uh, there's a lot of sulfur where coal is, and it oxidizes streams, and it turns them orange. If you've ever seen a, a sulfur oxidized stream, not very much can live in it. Usually a carp will float pretty quick if you put it in there. So that's that's one of the problems. The way we're getting coal out of the ground today, if we're shaft mining, it can be done with some relative uh, eco-friendly uh, technologies. It really can. But when we start removing mountaintops and we're still doing strip mining, that destroys land. I can show you places where I grew up in Pennsylvania where nothing will grow for 100 years or more. And and the the, the operations haven't been run since the 50s, and there's still nothing growing there. Giant black deserts. I can show you those. And they're actually going in there now and trying to figure out with what's left in there how can they burn it. The problem is they produce an ash, ash that is so toxic that you'd probably rather have nuclear uh, spent fuel rods buried under your house than this stuff. That's how bad it is. So coal can be part of an energy future. It probably should be. This is probably a way we should look into. But don't believe it's the it's the you know the the green eco fairy version of coal. It just it can't be. Why is this a survival topic, Jack? Because it's about our energy needs. That's why. And the reality is there's plenty of energy uh, in coal reserves in this country to go a long way into the future. The key is do we have the political will to do it? And if we do do it, what will it cause to happen? Um, kind of, you know, as an environmental consequence. Obviously, I'm not real concerned about it hey, Release CO2 gas, man, because guess what? <sighs> I just release CO2 gas, and so do you every time you exhale, and plants can use that stuff. So I'm not worried about it contributing to global warming at all. I am worried about what the mining will do, and if there is a way to cleanly mine coal, uh, I'd like to see somebody show it to me. I would love to see it done. If it can be done, great. Uh, I'm just not a big believer that it can be done based on what I've seen in my personal past. Um, I also get, you know, hear from people sometimes that are of the big government mentality and believe that socialism is the way and all. And there's an interesting thing going on in, of all places, Cuba right now, that's a better rebuttal to that than I could ever be. Let me read this to you. This is from the Associated Press. Free market reforms take hold in the Cuban countryside. On sleepy streets piled by rickety horse-drawn carts of rusting 1950s automobiles, the sounds of commerce are once again being heard in Cuba's countryside. A private sandwich shop has opened in a town previously served only by a grim state-run cafeteria. A woman sells trinkets from a small spot of shade. A weathered farmer in dusty jeans has rigged up an ancient ice cream machine and is selling cones for eight cents a pop out of sight of Cuba's dollar spending tourists in areas where money from overseas uh, relatives trickles in only sporadically dusty towns like this are once uh, this one slowly are being revitalized by a series of private enterprise initiatives usher- ushered in by President Raul Castro visits to more than a dozen towns in the central provinces of uh, Cienfuegos and San T. Spiritus found private businesses popping up on every main street, places hard hit by the decline of Cuba's sugar industry and the general economic malaise that has settled over the country after more than half a century of socialist rule. Even one-street hamlets like Yargamara's small businesses are buzzing while many residents and most canines and livestock laugh sleepily in the broiling midday sun. The government says about 338,000 Cubans across the island now have licenses to operate private businesses, including more than 4,500 in Sinfugos, I can't say that city right, 14,000 in Santi Spiritus. Uh, While the number has not changed significantly since April, it's still more than three times the government's goal for the year. The businesses are a result of Castro's plan to inject a measure of capitalism into Cuba's flatlining Marxist economy. Very interesting, isn't it? You know, an interesting thing to uh, to think about here is that Cuba only has a population of about 11 million people. So 338,000 Cubans having a license to operate a private business, uh, that's a pretty significant portion of the economy. And if you look at businesses employing people, that makes a very large portion of the uh, of the island employable by private business now maybe more than half, and we have about half people in this country who work for government of one form or another. Basically, Cuba's on track to have less socialism than we do soon. Uh, you can read the rest of this article for yourself. The main reason I included it today is I feel like today is like kind of like a myth-busting and what-you-didn't-know day, right? A day where you're learning a lot of things or misconceptions are being broke down and what have you. And I think one of the misconceptions about Cuba is that Cuba was this socialist utopia uh, where everybody had free health care and it kind of was able to subsist as a socialist island all by itself. The reality is most of these reforms began many, many years ago, and I'll tell you when they began. Uncle Jack will tell you the rest of the story here. They began when the Soviet Union fell apart and left Cuba to itself. And I'm going to tell you for a fact that Castro, Fidel Castro, right, the older Castro brother, felt totally screwed over by the Soviets. A very interesting book to read or get on audio and listen to is a book called Where Have All the Leaders Gone by Lee Iacocca, which was written before not this presidential election but the one before it about the candidates, and how do we select a leader, and what have you, and Iacocca is kind of a liberal, and I don't agree with a lot of his politics, some things I think he's very solid on, some things I don't think he's very solid on, um, you know, he's kind of one of the original bailout boys, being Chrysler bailed out by Reagan, uh, to be fair, they actually did pay the money back, not the way Ford claimed to play. Or uh, Ford, I'm sorry, Ford or the guys did take the money. The way Chevy claimed to pay the money back, right? Chevy takes one set of government money, moves it over on their books, and pays the other set of government money back. And then the CEO says, "We paid back all the money." Iacocca actually paid the bill back. Reagan didn't know what to do with it. Learned that in his book as well. Again, where have all the leaders gone? But Iacocca actually went to Cuba uh, many years ago. And when, I mean, you know, we're talking maybe 10, 12 years ago, and they ended up going, you know, dove hunting, pigeon hunting, they call it down there, and, and hung out with Castro and talked to him, and had some very frank conversations with Castro. The reality is Fidel Castro has been willing to pay ball, play ball with the U.S. for a very, very long time. When, 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 when the Soviets left him hanging, he was forced with a reality. Without the infusion of Russian money to keep this little island running, it didn't work anymore. And Cuba has been decentralizing things ever since that occurred because they've had no choice. What's interesting is that it works. It absolutely does work. So the reality is right now, I bet you Raul Castro would have a sit-down with Obama in a minute and would do just about anything we asked him to do to renew relations with the United States, and yet we won't do it. We have great relations, honestly, trade relations with Russia today. So what is the thing with Cuba well, as Florida goes, so goes the election, and no president has the guts to reestablish the relationship. That's another survival topic, because here we have an island with a uh, nation that we could have a great com- com- commerce relationship with that would probably create a lot of jobs and solve a lot of problems and help a lot of people, but we don't want to do it because everybody's afraid of the political consequences of doing so. And even the VP, you know, behind the guy that's a lame duck president doesn't want it on his table that he had anything to do with it either. And then basically, this entire relationship is held hostage by the voting block of South Florida. Bet you didn't know that. And if you did, you're probably happy to hear somebody else actually say it. The last one I have for you is actually kind of a positive thing. It's not maybe as positive as we would like it to be, but it's out on UPI.com, which is... Uh, uh, what's what's that? United Press International. So it's kind of like a a version of the AP, but something we've probably not heard about as much because they're not as big. Anyway, um, they have an article out here published seven November, and uh, I, I want to read you the article, and then I want to read to you the one comment because the one comment is really pretty interesting and uh, quite insightful, actually. Washington, November 7th, UPI, a biannual campaign tied to when clocks get changed, urges U.S. adults to check and update their emergency stockpiles of food, water, and medicine. Alan Barker, or Baker, Alan Baker, interim executive director of American Public Health Association, said this year, a multitude of extreme weather events from Hurricane Irene to wildfires in Texas to freak snowstorms before Halloween displaced countless residents and injured or even killed others. The Get get Ready, Set Your Clocks, Check Your Stocks biannual campaign is to raise awareness of the importance of having stocked emergency preparedness kit of food, water, first aid supplies, medications, and food for pets, uh, Baker said. Quote, though we can't predict when or where disaster will strike, there are simple proactive steps each of us can take now to mitigate the impact and keep and keep ourselves, our families, and our communities safe. End quote. Baker said in a statement, quote, if you don't have an emergency stockpile at home or work, this time of year is a perfect opportunity to create one. If you already have a stockpile, it's important to replenish it. Twice a year, Be- Baker recommends two. Make sure you have at least three days' supply of food, one gallon per person of water per day, and water uh, water stored. Write down how you will get in touch with one another during an emergency. Collect all your medications together and make sure there's always several days more. Save money, make a list, and buy items when they go on sale. Or shop at stores that carry bulk items and then split the cost with Preparedness Buddy. Uh, last, prepared food, water, and toys and carrier for your pets. Uh, I think it's great. I, I don't think it's anywhere near enough. If it was, then the show would have been the survival podcast episode one and nothing more. Uh, we need to pay attention beyond that. We need preparedness beyond that. But if everybody in America would do at least that, we would get through disasters a lot better. We really would. But here's an interesting comment that was posted by AP Binfo. I guess is what you would call him. AP Binfo. Anyway, let's talk about before and after disaster strikes. Perhaps share your opinion. Crucial information and rights are essential. Someday the new face of insurance or government may see to it the insuring public is genuinely prepared and informed. Until then... The policyholder may need not only be prepared for disaster, you need to be prepared for the aftermath when you are most vulnerable and bullies take advantage. After all, it is the effect from disaster that preparedness allows you to better handle. And this is what I've always said with some additional things in it that we learned when we had the episode with the gentleman that went through the house fire. You do not prepare for the disaster, you prepare for its aftermath. During the disaster, there's not a hell of a lot to be done. You try to find a safe place, shelter in, hunker down, and hope you get through it. When a tornado is tearing the roof off your house, you go to the lowest level you possibly can, the strongest part of the structure, and you hold on for your dear life, and you probably play, play to God. And those of you that don't believe in God will probably be praying for praying to God in that instance. right? But once it stops, if you're not dead, if you're not so incapacitated that you can't move, then you have to deal with the real problems. Then you deal without food and water and shelter and security and energy. That's when your five survival needs and sanitation, right? That's when you deal with all of that. So the preparedness is about the aftermath, not the disaster itself. But it's also the case that many times in these places where people are insured, it takes years to get their money. There were plenty of people in New Orleans that were insured and then told, oh, but you weren't insured for a flood. See, flood's really what did the damage. We know the storm blew your house down, but then then the flood was actually what caused the damage or, or what have you and had to fight for that. You know, we heard about the guy that I had on with the fire. Sorry, his name escapes me right now. But when he was on, he told us how the people that came to board up his house stole what was left of his stuff the night of the fire. So it is important when we're looking at this, and this is what I wanted to end today, that when we're checking our stockpiles and all, we think about the fact that if we have them stored just in our house, our house might be what's what's destroyed. And maybe we can't get to them. What type of redundancy and resiliency can we build into that? It's important to understand that even when we have things insured, there might be a lag time between when we actually collect and when we can actually rebuild. And where we're going to be able to rebuild. Maybe we won't be able to rebuild where we were at. And that sometimes if enough things fail, maybe even the insurance companies can fail. And we need to prepare more for the aftermath of a disaster than for the acute period of time where it's raging. We need to think about that in our everyday lives. So please, take this stuff seriously and make sure you're as prepared as you can. And remember, with preparedness, you're never done. You're always on a sliding scale. You're either getting a little bit more prepared or a little bit less prepared every day. A little bit stronger or a little bit weaker. You don't really have a choice. Nothing is static in nature and nothing is static in a living system. You are a living system, so you're moving one way or another on that sliding scale. And remember that scale is not just about preparedness. The more prepared you are, the more liberty you have in your life. So make sure you do something every day to have a little bit more liberty in your life. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what?